name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, we're going to talk about something that has been nagging me for a long, long time as I have struggled to understand climate change. Uh, what can I do about it? What's happening? Is it too late? I'm joined today to help answer some of these questions by my guests. Carolyn Barthel is on the statewide steering committee for 350 Massachusetts, and she's also the coordinator for the Franklin Node. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. What is the mission of 350 Massachusetts? We are a statewide network of uh, climate activists uh, with 17 nodes around the state. That's kind of what you would call a chapter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we work on pushing our, our state towards sustainability. Sustainability, yeah. Yeah, important, important role. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about how you plug into that as, as the show goes on. We also have Ted McIntyre, who is on the board of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network. Welcome, Ted. Hi, it's great to be here. Tell me something about Mass Climate Action Network. The Massachusetts Climate Action Network, or MCAN, works to provide peer-to-peer -peer learning between grassroots organizations in different towns that are f trying to improve get clean energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's many examples that we can talk through, but basically it's a learning network where uh, self-starter grassroots groups come together to share what they've learned about how to do things. Great, great. Thank you, Ted. And also my friend, Richard Halpern, who is with the Franklin Democratic Town Committee. Welcome, Richard. Good to be here. You've taken a very active role with the committee in terms of the educational offer offerings. And one of the things we're talking about is this exciting 2050 climate crisis uh, symposium that's coming up on October 17th. What's that all about, Richard? Well, we, we decided as a strategic group to uh, provide the first of uh, several educational forums to uh, provide to the uh, citizens of uh, Franklin to uh, increase their awareness and to educate them about important issues of the day mm -hmm. and figured that climate science and or the climate crisis would be a uh, good event for a kickoff. Boy, I, I, I can't think of a better one. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, it's something I stumble around with, to be honest. And uh, Carolyn, you and I had coffee uh, about a year ago, and I was appreciative of that because that started to get me uh, my feet wet, if you will. And it may sound ridiculous, and it probably does sound ridiculous to people that know about climate change. That that. Uh, but if you look at polls and if you look at uh, public opinion, it's no secret that climate change is fairly misunderstood. So, uh, Again, uh, please come out to the Franklin Elks on October 17th, 7 to 9 p.m., and en enjoy an evening of climate talk that is really going to help dispel some myths and educate you on what is important relative to the climate today. It's, a, it's an opportunity to get your feet wet. You yeah. just use those words, yeah. right? Even if you don't feel as if you're knowledgeable, then it's particularly important to make the first step and to begin the process of self-education. And it... It doesn't take a lot to learn the sufficient facts. Right. So that's a good opportunity uh, in this forum. And then once you are armed with some of those facts, you can do something about it and you can make our future better than it would be otherwise. Yeah, the point I wanted to emphasize was um, we wanted to present to the people, uh, to the citizens, what's really happening specific to Franklin. It's not just a um, abstract uh, event that's happening in Bangladesh or in Australia or in the Middle East. Is there are uh, specifics that are happening right now in our community 
and 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 it's important to deal with it once you know the facts. That's such an important point. Thank you, Richard, for that, because so often the question comes back to the individual. Yeah, well, I understand that's a big problem. What what can I do about it? You know, what can I do about it? I can't rejoin the Paris Accord. I can't force uh, the Trump administration to roll back some of the rollbacks that they've done to the uh, Obama era regulations or whatever the latest thing. I can't even talk to the president about how ridiculous it is when he says that we have the cleanest air and cleanest uh, water in the history of the, <laughs> of the United States. I mean, I just can't even do that. But what what can we do is, is part of the question that we're going to look to answer. So I'm looking to one of our resident experts to give me an overview of where we stand relative to climate change, why is it a crisis today as I sit here in 2019? Well, it's a crisis because what we are doing as a society, as both individuals and as a society, is setting up conditions where current generations, the poor of the world, and certainly the future, will be highly negatively impacted by the actions we take now. The decisions we are making now uh, have long-term consequences, uh, and we there are, there's information that says it will take a thousand years for the oceans to cool. If we stopped all carbon pollution today, it would take a thousand years for the oceans to return to their original state. The decisions we are making have long-term consequences, and we are committing uh, to to those consequences in real time. Yeah. So that's why it's important. There's there's a lot of scientific underneath scientific discussion underneath that which we can we can go through as to yeah. what, what what the carbon budget is and whatnot well ted that that's an area i was just going to go to before we came in the air ted was talking about the carbon budget and how 2030 is a magic number can you talk to us about what absolutely. the carbon budget is absolutely so in in discussions of climate you will oftentimes hear uh the idea that we must reduce our emissions, that the United States must reduce its emissions to a 1990 level. Right. In many ways, emissions is something that happens every year. So you have 300 tons per in uh, per year or so, some number of tons of carbon dioxide per year. Sure. A different concept says, without thinking about how many tons per year, what is the total amount of carbon that has been placed in the atmosphere? Right. How many tons of CO2 are already there? And that's a calculation that allows you to say um, we have a certain amount now and we know that a larger amount will cause a certain amount of damage. So now you can connect the absolute amount of carbon in the atmosphere to the correlated damage and that allows you to think of the carbon issue as in terms of a budget. I mean, how much more carbon can we emit before we run out of uh, available space to put the pollution. So, and, and so what we're seeing now is that the uh, the scientific community has identified the idea that if we that the amount of pollution that would be put into the atmosphere between now and 2030, the amount of carbon dioxide pollution that we put into the air between now and 2030, if we do nothing, will commit the planet to a level of warming that is damaging. Uh, in the present and to our children. And that by 2030, if we have exceeded that level, the world will still be going on, but we will have, as a society, baked in damage that our children, our grandchildren, and our grandchildren's grandchildren will suffer from. Irreversible. Irreversible. You can't go back. And that, that's the, that is the heartbreaking thing, is that you can't... 
technically is extremely difficult to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Is this an opinion? Is this a Democrat-generated uh, uh, report? Is this a uh, Republican opinion? Is there is some sort of partisan group that's doing this? Let me. I think Carolyn can give a, a, a parallel answer, but this kind of data comes from a group called the Internet Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm -hmm. which is a UN organization formed in 1990. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, the purpose of that uh, commission is to have scientists collect all of the relevant research that's been done, basically put it in a blender and figure out what it means, mm -hmm. all right, from research across the globe, mm -hmm. right? And so that is, it, it, it is thousands of scientists from hundreds of countries over tens of years making these decisions. It is the gold standard of the most thoughtful, conservative, clear-eyed view of what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Carolyn, would you agree that I get that uh, yeah. in my ballpark? Yeah, yeah. The, the gold standard is the IPCC. And, you know, I, of course, it was a provocative question because that is the argument you hear. You hear from uh, our commander in chief, you hear from lawmakers uh, ad nauseum about how this is a political issue uh, motivated by business interests that uh, um, depending upon who you listen to, well, there's different scientists out there. We have our scientists that disagree with yours. But what you just described to me, Ted, is a mathematical formula. It's not subject to opinion. It's not subject to uh, politicization, correct, if that's a word. Yeah. Um, if, if I could just, if, if I just, it's very interesting that the effect of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere was discovered by a guy named Fourier in, in 1824. Eunice Foote, a woman scientist in 1856, published the first data that the atmosphere would trap heat. 1856. In 1896, the first climate model was done by a guy named Arrhenius, Savante Arrhenius. He did it by hand, and he predicted essentially what the computer models uh, are predicting today. So this, the science underlying climate change dates back 150 years. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a political choice. I mean, this is physics. It, 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 it's, that's why Bill McKibben makes the case, you know, you can't argue with Mother Nature, you can't negotiate a timeline with physics. Right? It is what it is. It it's uh, it's frightening stuff, uh, Carolyn, and I, I know that uh, for your organization has been very involved in beating back some of the infrastructure yeah. projects that are coming that would harm the environment, and I know you've been very instrumental in that. Um, how, uh, how nuanced is this uh, climate crisis, if you will? Are there many different layers? Is there carbon emissions? Are there others relative to the pollution of the oceans and plastics? I mean, how many different layers do we have to go through to arrest yeah. this problem? Think of all the different ways you impact the world, that's how many layers there are. Right. right. Your car, your home, your job, what you buy, everything you do impacts the world. It, it impacts our carbon footprint it, for each of us individually and for us around the globe, all of us. Everything we do. 
Every time I see the floating oceans of plastic, the floating, uh, you know, islands, you will, of, of plastic, uh, it, it's it's frightening at best and almost mind-numbing to the point of, what can I do? You know, and it gets back to that continuously. And I think, Richard, you help answer one of those questions with an educational form. What can I do? The first start, as Ted said, is get your feet wet. Get in the arena and start having some conversation. How has this become important in your life? How do you feel empowered? Well, I, I guess I'll take a personal uh, point. I mean, I was uh, I had a career in marketing and business to business, uh, you know, selling hardware and software that I hardly understood. And um, I decided when I was retired that I wanted to do something personal, uh, something with meaning and purpose, and uh, and something that I could uh, get my head around. And and as the more I became uh, more familiar with this crisis at hand, it, it just struck me that there must be others that feel this way as well, that they too want to uh, learn more about what's happening uh, in their environment and, and do something about it. It strikes me as awfully frustrating to have a patient, the patient being the world, our environment, uh, that is sick and have it fighting back, if you will, against treatment. Uh, and that, that you know, that's how I feel with the tug and pull of all of the politics relative to this. I, I, it's, it's going to require us to do things differently. Right, right. You're going to have to be more conscious about how we live in the world yeah. and and be think longer term than just, oh, I want to drink uh, water out of a plastic bottle. I remind everybody, we are speaking with a panel relative to climate change and the climate crisis. We're talking specifically about the 2050 Climate Crisis Symposium, which is going to be held at the Franklin Elks Lodge, 1077 Pond Street, on Thursday, October 17th, from 7 to 9 p.m. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. So if we kind of bring it back in a little bit, and could I use the carbon... Uh, budget as an example um, so because clearly we've got a many many layers of, of environmental damage that we've done that we have to get uh, uh, eradicated relative to the uh, carbon budget we were talking about a 10-year period that we have to make major corrections major corrections and, and 10 years is only an estimate it could be more it could be less. It could be less. Okay, so roughly a 10-year period with dire consequences if we don't. Is there enough time? Uh, one of the one of the the question of time scale is important because we only have 10 years. Uh, Bill McKibben, who if you as you become into the as you come into the climate movement, you will hear Bill McKibben's name repeatedly. Short history is he wrote a book in 1989 called The End of Nature, where he argued that already no act of nature was immune from mankind's uh, touch. Mm -hmm. Right. Last week, so this is uh, last week or so, he put a, an article in the New Yorker saying that the best way to stop the fossil fuel industry and make the time the time scale that we need is for pressure to be put on banks, asset managers, banks, and insurance companies to stop providing financial support to the fossil fuel industry. Just like in 2008 when the bottom fell out of the, all the markets yeah. within minutes, you know, it felt like minutes, but a few weeks, right? If the big banks were to say, we're not going to build any more coal plants anywhere in the world. 
we're not going to we're not going to fund your latest trip up to the Arctic to search for oil, right? We're just not going to give you that money. Exxon would be in trouble. So one one thing that gives timeline gives it to my mind, right? That gives us a mechanism that matches the time scale is to go after the financing. Now, you and I in the four, uh, sitting here, it's like, okay, I'm going to go tell Citibank not to give money to Exxon anymore, right? It's like, that's your classic question of the individual, what can the individual do versus the, the collective, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but I think that individual voices become a collective. And speaking about climate change, recognizing that there is a mechanism uh, to tar- that, that, that exists, just talking about it with your friends and neighbors, it normalizes the discussion right. in a way that it's okay. If you, not to go too deep, and correct me if anybody wants to jump in, there's a question of this idea of divestment. Probably at this point, most people have heard about divesting fossil fuel resources uh, or stocks from, from like Harvard University, yeah, yeah. right? This is an ongoing, this was started by Bill McKibben. It's had significant impact on, uh, on uh, uh, Exxon Oil because there's so, much, there's so much interesting stuff. When you talk about a budget, let me just say, there's a budget, let's go back to the budget discussion for a second. There's a fixed amount of carbon that can be emitted into the atmosphere between now and 2030 that uh, that's the maximum that we can emit and still maintain a uh, livable world, let's put it that way. Turns out that the fossil fuel industry knows of carbon reserves that are still in the ground mm. that are five times larger than the budget that we can burn. My goodness. And we exactly. can't burn it. We can't burn it. And so what happens is- keep it in the ground. A company like Exxon's, their stock value depends on that 5X factor of stuff that's still in the ground. They're running around waving a flag saying, hey, we're worth X amount. Our stock's all this. Oh, it's we're our great. inventory. It's our inventory. But if you can't burn it, it's not real. Right. So Exxon stocks should, it's a bubble. Wow. Uh, right? Wow. And, and so all the fossil fuel industry exists in that bubble. And when the banks look and say, oh, my God, I can't give Exxon any more money because they are falsely representing that they have this fossil fuel in the ground that we know they're not going to be able to burn, all of a sudden the money comes into play. The reason I keep coming back to this sort of very abstract, high-level Wall Street thing is because those guys respond to people you have to speak the language about yeah it. that they're sensitive to yeah yeah interesting and that that's how the collective the the one voice can become many um, it's, it sounds like you're almost talking about economic sanctions you know just the ways there are sanctions being put on yeah. Iran yeah. Yeah. in order yeah. to change yeah. their behavior you're yeah. talking about the the, the financiers uh, putting pressure on um, the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. Uh, to change their behavior as well. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that you you mentioned uh, things do change, and they can change pretty rapidly. Um, You know, and I I I keep reverting back to this, but I think about uh, addiction uh, in that related field, which is a place that I work, and the stigma along with addiction has radically changed in the last four or five years, Mm -hmm. all because of the collective construct of our Mm -hmm. conversations and the language we're using around that. Mm -hmm. It can happen. It's also not the financiers of these projects. It's also the insurers of this, these ah, projects. Right, right. There are uh, insurance companies that are not insuring big 
big projects anymore. Right, right. Uh, just to be, again, not, uh, yeah. for example, there's an issue in Weymouth mm-hmm. right now, a compressor station, right? buzzword, compressor station. This is a thing that will compress natural gas to repressurize at high pressure so it can flow through the pipelines up to Canada. Right? It's a big building they want to put in basically downtown Weymouth. If the insurance company says, I'm not going to insure that building, those guys are in trouble. The people who want to build that building are in trouble. So the insurance companies have a huge amount of influence because no one's going to build such a high-tech structure if they don't have insurance. Sure. So it's back to... Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Carolyn, um, you have spent a lot of time, I'm going to call it community organizing, relative Mm -hmm. to climate change. Um, How long have you been engaged in this? Since 2013. 2013. I, uh, uh, the thing that is most notable for Franklin is that in 2015, uh, the Access Northeast pipeline was was uh, proposed, and uh, before that, it was the Atlantic Bridge, which is what, what the Weymouth compressor station is part of, and um, and the Access Northeast project was slated to go through Franklin, mm-hmm. and I did outreach to all the towns on both. Pipeline routes, proposed routes. There were 17 towns, and I did outreach to 11 of them. And out of that, eight of them actually passed resolutions in town uh, to uh, against the pipeline. Yeah. So you know, I helped organize a lot of different little towns, and we fought it. And uh, fortunately, the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court uh, ruled in our favor yeah. that uh, it was not a good financial arrangement mm-hmm. for this project. So that kind of put the final nail in the coffin. Have you seen uh, your reception, the reception to what you're talking about? Uh, has it gotten warmer over time? No pun intended. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, yes, in the years people- that I've been I've been in work, working on this, it just feels, as, it, when I first started working on this, it, it, climate the, the phrase climate change was not on the radar. Right. I remember rejoicing at, at hearing uh, that the... Uh, um, Oh gosh! That the Federal Reserve uh, uh, Commissioner was coming out, uh, you know, and talking about climate change, and you know, all it, it, it has now become more of a buzzword. Yeah, and it is pe- even though people don't a lot know a lot about the details, they at least are aware of it. I want to remind everybody we are speaking with a panel about climate change. My name is Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. And importantly, we're talking about a educational forum that's being sponsored in part by the Franklin Democratic Town Committee that is happening on October 17th at the Elks Lodge, 1077 Pond Street in Franklin. And that is happening on a Thursday evening, which is October 17th from 7 to 9 p.m. And the title of this is 2050 Climate Crisis. So it doesn't say carbon budget crisis and it doesn't say ocean crisis. This is a truly a climate, our entire climate mm-hmm. crisis. What are the other hot issues that uh, in climate change that we're dealing with? And I keep using these terrible puns. <laughs> i got to stop. I don't mean to. But what are the other uh, major touchstones that you're working on right now? I, I think the thing that that, that pe- when people are are struggling with what they can do, yeah. it's easier to kind of break it down into different levels. Certainly, we can do things on a personal level, and that makes us feel good. And those are good. Th- you know, it is good to feel 
to be part of the solution rather than the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that part's lovely, you know. So if you want to put solar panels on your roof or yeah. you want to buy an electric vehicle, that's all great. Those are all u- really useful. But at this point, this late in the game, we—that's not enough. It will never be ever. I was afraid ever you were enough. Say that. I, I, honestly, I was because. Um, I have solar panels in my house. Feel very proud of that. Happy mm-hmm. that they're there. Uh, by the way, after I got done putting them on, I couldn't understand why everybody that's eligible didn't have them on, because the credits were massive, uh, yeah. and it was almost a f- well, not free, but anyway, that's another story. But yeah. I, I was afraid you were going to say that mm-hmm. uh, that it's not enough. That it's not enough because um, it's so easy just to recycle and think we're done, right. you know, and not have to go. I got to go out on a Thursday night to hear this panel talk about climate crisis i can't do that right. but the fact of the matter is that if we don't do that we're all in deep trouble and yeah. it's imminent the, the the level we have to work at now is systemic change yeah so that means on the local level what you can do in your town yeah uh, and there are lots and lots of things you to do on, on that. There's a state level, what you can uh, work with the legislature and other state uh, and, and different agencies uh, in the state to uh, make change. And then, of course, there's the national level. You know, the national level, it's, it's a little harder for us to feel more powerful with, but uh, honestly. Uh, but, you know, what the heck, um, you know, you, you got to try. Absolutely. And so you're t- I love the fact, thank you for that, systemic change, systemic change. So this would include a bill that has been proposed by Senator Eldridge and uh, uh, State Rep. Decker? Marjorie Decker, Marjorie yes. Decker, I'm sorry, Marjorie Decker, which calls for 100% renewable energy in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And what time frame are they looking at, do you know? For 2035, they want to have all electricity be sustainable. Yeah. So we yeah, can certainly the support state. a bill like that. We can learn about it, yeah. first of all, by going online. And I'm sure both Senator Eldridge and um, Marjorie Decker. Decker's uh, uh, website have the bill itself yeah. up there for your reading. But once you, once you become familiar with it, give your legislator a call. And let them know that you're you're committed to supporting this bill. That you want their commitment for a vote. There, there are three major kind of ways that we live. Uh, how what electricity we use, uh, how we drive, how we heat our homes, mm-hmm. and in our buildings, and how we get around town. You know, get get use transportation. Right. And so, it's twenty thirty five for electricity to be sustainable. Twenty forty five for heat and um, and ho- uh, heating homes and other buildings uh, and transportation to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So because there because homes uh, uh, buildings and uh, transportation are more complicated, it's easier easier for us to work on the straight use of electricity at this point mm-hmm. you know let's 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 cut get the work on the low low hanging fruit right now i think that the one of the things to keep in mind is that the very simple and quite empowering action of calling your state representative or your state senator your state rep and communicating with them because i it's my impression that often uh, they are searching for guidance Right. There's no polls that give the sense of uh, a town like Franklin right? th- th- that is so statistically sound. Right. Or they rely on people calling up. And I think that 
making that connection is important. And, and oftentimes you don't need to know a lot of the specifics. You don't have to be able to argue exactly how we're going to get to 100% clean energy by 2035. You call and say, I want this. Please do this. Please support this bill. And your representative will figure out the details. That is for sure. And we both, Richard, know Jeff Roy very well. And he'll say on some pretty hotly contested issues that you see Facebook, for instance, there's a lot of banter about. He may get one or two phone calls and those one or two calls are meaningful to him. Absolutely. Uh, and so I I couldn't couldn't agree more. And I, but but I, I just because I Mass Climate Action Network, yep. 350MA. Uh, there's an organization called Power Shift, a coalition of different uh, green energy uh, groups. They oftentimes will have state house lobby days. Mm-hmm. Where you go and right, Carolyn? Ma- Mass Power Forward. Mass Power Forward. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mass Power Forward. Uh, and that people don't realize how empowering that is yeah. and how simple it is right. to go in and meet your state rep. Of course, Jeff Roy is a, a doll, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, but I mean, go in and meet your step right, explain, and you feel better, they understand more, and it's really a powerful thing. Well, we're talking Jeff Roy. He will ride his bike to the state house a lot. He has an electric vehicle. I can tell you he walks the walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Personally, I, I see yeah. that. Could, could I add something? Uh, uh, Carolyn's... Uh, meetings for uh, 350 Mass uh, have been uh, are, are very educational as well and there was a meeting held about six weeks ago uh, where uh, they talked about how to communicate mm-hmm. about climate change with uh, your neighbors, with your friends, with your family. What a great idea. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there, yeah, there's some really good literature out there. Carolyn, when are the meetings and where are they? Our uh, 350 Massachusetts meetings uh, are on the first and third Thursdays of the month at the First Universal Society in Franklin. That's at 262 Chestnut Street, and they're from 7 to 9 p.m. Okay, that's great. And so that's at, uh, uh, that's done at the First Unitarian Universalist Church, and what a great place to get your feet wet, as you say. Um, Ted, what about uh, uh, Mass Climate Action Network? Do you meet locally? Massachusetts Climate Action Network is... Uh basically a coalition of chapters in different towns. So okay. each chapter has its own meetings. Um, MCAN has a y- annual conference, mm-hmm. and we have regular webinars on topics of general interest. Again, back to the cross-fertilization between groups that are learning things. Sure. Uh, and those are online. The The uh, website is massclimateaction.org. Net. Net. Okay, thank you. Net. Okay. I always, I always get it mixed up. It's massclimateaction.net, and it's a local group. Do you think we're too fragmented? relative to organizations that are working with climate con- climate change? The Mass Power Forward is an organ- is a coalition of over 200 organizations There's a key word, fighting, sustainable- fighting uh, for sustainability in Great. Massachusetts. Thank you for that. And, and it, it's, it's, there is, Massachusetts is a rich environment for nonprofits operating, working on climate change. Right. But I think the interest of the, I, I think an interesting point is that something like this coalition, there have all the different mechanisms. Someone I respect and analogize the whole thing to the D-Day uh, invasion, you know, 167 years ago, right? There were paratroopers going in behind the lines. There were the, the guys in the tanks. There was the Navy. There's a whole range of things that has to be done. And there's legal issues. There's uh, grassroots. Uh, there's lobbying. There's all kinds of stuff that's in that coalition. And one of the points that I find fascinating is that for each person, 
there is a path into the climate issue. You don't have to worry about climate scientists being a climate scientist. You don't even have to worry about being very brave. There's always some way. If you're interested in health issues, if you're interested in education, if you're interested in food, if you're interested in tra- all these things. I mean, the point I often make is that the great American novel about climate change has not been written. Right? There's more and more climate fiction. Right? You know, they call it cli-fi. Right? Novels yeah, about yeah. climate change. I mean, we're still weak. I mean, there is this rich field for someone who can consider themselves a climate activist, but they're doing art. Right? And that's meaningful because it shifts the cultural view of the whole topic. Wow, that's a powerful thought. So what you just said answered so many of my concerns, one of which is has always been, I'm not smart enough for this. You know, I'm, I'm sitting across from scientists here um, that understand this a lot better than I will. And I can't I can't possibly break down a climate budget, but I could do something like talk to somebody about, as you mentioned, food. I love food. But did, uh, yeah. If I could just so, go one step and then Carol, one step. For, I mean, back in the day of the Apollo Project, yeah. which sort of predates many of the people listening to this, this, this yeah, show, yeah, right? Yeah. But at that time, you did not need to know the nozzle size on the Apollo rocket, right, right in order to participate. You were there, you were watching, you were yeah. supporting, right? Yeah. You, were, you but, but the technology, I mean, it's like the scientists have the science. That's all taken care of, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about what do we do about it? And that's a whole other conversation that anyone can join. Ted, and you're a good example because we, we are volunteers here at the table, right? Yep. And so uh, you recently retired and you are a, a, a scientist, literally. Literally a rocket scientist <laughs> sitting in front of me in my studio. Um, but seriously, you could have you could be doing a lot of things with your time. What is it that grabbed you about climate change? It's it's a question that I have asked many other people because I think the personal story is really important. How does someone become an activist? And it's for me it's been a long path. Uh And I have told myself the same story in multiple ways. I think the most primitive story is that I grew up in New Bedford. Um, Hurricanes were always an issue, right? And so the idea that hurricanes are more intense resonates with me. I've seen the damage uh, that hurricanes can do. And so that's part of it. Part of my, my makeup is as a scientist, the elegance of science is so beautiful. And when I entered this whole arena, I thought that if I could just explain to people how infrared radiation interacted with heat, you know, everyone would get it and we'd be, we'd be good to go, right? <laughs> I soon learned that that is not the case, right? Uh, but for me, it's become a moral imperative, right? You can, I mean, I don't think I'm in any way special, but you can see where everything's headed and it's not good. And the imperative to take action, not be silent, and again, personal, I mean, probably coming out of a Catholic upbringing, you know, you have to go to examine your conscience on a regular basis, right? You have to look at yourself and say, hey, am I, am I good with this? No, I'm not good with it. I'm not good with where we're going. And we must recognize it. And uh, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's, Carolyn, that's did, kind did of you rant. have a similar entry? I've I've always been an environmentalist. Describe that ever to since me. Well, I can, coffee. Yeah. Ever since I can remember. Yeah. My mom started recycling in right. St. Louis. Right. And she was really proud of that. And we were very religious in, in you know, taking our cans and our bottles and things, you know, and recycling everything. And so I, I really 
kind of grew up with, and you know, I've, we've always been campers and you know, hikers, and and so I've always felt a, a connection to nature. And uh, you know, when Rachel Carson came out with a Silent Spring, you know, I was just a kid then, but I kind of remember what that was about. And my mom kept saying, you know, the weather's not what it used to be. Yeah, and yeah. she. So I just I. I just have always been concerned about the environment, mm. and but it, it was a shift going from being an environmentalist to being a climate activist. Interesting, because when you're an environmentalist, you're focusing on what's happening to that stream or that river a myopic, or that right? or that yeah. or yeah, it's myopic. Yeah. What that species, and when you are thinking, no. That's not big enough. It has to be the whole friggin' globe. Yeah. It has to be everything that's impacted. So I, w- I want to talk to a little bit about what people can do on a local level. Please. Because you know, so, some people may not be comfortable in going and seeing their state legislator, and that's okay. Although we are going to have to do things that we are not comfortable doing. I am doing things that I never thought I would ever do in my whole life. Yeah. I never saw myself that way. And it's very powerful. To, you know, it's, it's scary, but it's very exciting and very powerful. And to say, oh, yeah, I can do this. Uh, and so I want to encourage people to get outside their comfort zones. There are, uh, Franklin has become a green community. Mm-hmm. It has that designation yeah. now, which is really excellent. And it really allows, uh, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for the, the town of Franklin to actually make some really significant gains in what they're what they're doing for sustainability, and you know they they can um, the the town can uh, have green aggregation can work on that, which means that that uh, everybody could uh, either opt in or opt out depends on how you organize it uh, for uh, bulk purchasing of, of green electricity, so that you're not getting your brown electricity which is from oil and gas. Right. Uh, you know that that's one thing. You can have a sustainability manager. You can um, uh, you can write ordinance. You know, work with the the uh, the town leadership and have ordinances for all for all commercial new commercial buildings that are over a certain size. You can uh, put you you must have solar panels right, on them. Right. Watertown just did that uh, a year ago. Right. So there are all kinds of things that we can do on a local level, and I think that's really really powerful. But there are a lot of people in Franklin. There sure are, and we're, there's we're, a lot of possibility of city people operating as progress. a town. Yeah, 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 and 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 you're absolutely right. And and you just pointed out so many uh, uh, points of reference that people could become involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, the key is to get involved at some level. Find your passion. I love what you said about a moral imperative, uh, because that's where it's hitting me. Uh, a moral imperative. So with moral imperatives, we don't get to choose. You know, that's the whole nature of what we're talking about. You don't get to choose whether or not you're going to become involved or wear the T-shirt or wear the hat. We've got it. Because guess what? i got to breathe this air, too. Uh, It doesn't know any boundaries. Um, So many times I've heard people largely on the right talk about uh, economic incentives, that if we green our planet, it would have a detrimental effect on our uh, economics and the state of our economy. What do you say to that? The, the, this is kind of a red herring, right? To put jobs in opposition to 
a green economy, right? I mean, so first of all, you reject the premise of the question that sure. somehow it's going to cost more. Uh, that I, I think part of the denialist uh, idea, people who deny climate change often connected to sort of Stalinistic removal of your freedoms, right? Because right. you won't, you know. But the, I saw a tweet after the debate where there were on TV where there's lots of discussion about straws and hamburgers. A tweet that said, in a world where we have solved climate change, we will have straws and hamburgers, right? But they'll be made in a sustainable way, right? So it's a red, yeah, I mean, and, and, but I think that one of the, uh, when you talk about costs, your pure costs, and again, there's a whole list of things. The Green New Deal will pay for itself, right? Just, but if we do nothing, uh, I, I've seen recently an estimate that by the end of the century, we will have $550 trillion worth of damage to the planet if we don't do it to, to everything, right? There's not $550 trillion worth of money in the earth now. Not right? only do you but reject the, the premise of the question, but it's a moot point by the time you even get out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's right? the, the damage that is coming far out exceeds any potential... Uh, a 10% downturn on the market, Exactly, exactly, yeah. right, right, right. So yeah. this short-termism of saying, oh, you know, we must focus now right. is the moral imperative, right? Yeah. You say, I'm looking to my own interests now. In the future, you know, they'll take care of themselves, which is just uh, inherently unsatisfactory from a uh, ethical perspective, at least from mine. The only anecdote is education. Well, this type of thinking, there, right? there will be a time when there is so much damage to the planet that there will not be a way to clean it up. We will not have the infrastructure. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of these topics at the 2050 Climate Crisis event, which is being held October 17th at the Elks Lodge, 1077 Pond Street here in Franklin. It's going to be from 7 to 9 p.m. It is uh, co-sponsored by a number of organizations, Richard. Well, it's the three of us. It's Franklin, Franklin Democratic Town Committee, uh, Massachusetts Climate Action Network, and 350 Massachusetts. Well, I, I was going to quote. There's this incredible book. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a book about the warming of the planet and its effect on humans' life. He references, he makes some, you know, statements about the effect of... This uh, is uh, David Wallace Wells, yeah, uh, this, The Uninhabitable Earth. The Uninhabitable Earth. Okay. Uh, he's not a scientist, he's a journalist. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's rather sobering. Experience. A must read, huh? Yeah. Um, he, he makes the point that 14% uh, of the real estate in Miami will be flooded by just 2045. Uh, you know... Trillion dollars worth of homes and businesses will suffer chronic flooding by 2100. Um, but I can't, like I said, I, can't. I, mean, I think it's not. It's it's it sounds hyperbolic, what I'm about to say, mm -hmm. but it's not beyond the realm of the physical possibility. Right? Is that humans can turn planet Earth into Venus? which is now at 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Right. It's, it, it's unlikely. There's been a lot of things that are unlikely right, that have happened. And and so books like uh, the David Wallace Wells book point out that there are uh, real issues. There's something called the wet bulb temperature, right, which is a me method of measuring temperature. And once that gets like above 136 degrees Fahrenheit, humans die. Right. We're approaching the wet 
bulb lethal temperature in places like uh, the Mideast. Yeah. Like uh, uh, Abu Ghraib. Yeah. I mean, those places, right? There's parts of the world that will be uninhabitable, yeah. literally. Yeah. All and, around the, the equator. That's why Guatemalans are leaving. Yeah. They, are, uh, they, are, they cannot grow crops. They are starving. Yeah. They have to leave. Yeah. They cannot live there. Yeah. They, there's not enough water. There's uh, and they can't grow their crops. I'll tell you what uh, really grabbed my attention. You talked about hurricanes, the strength of hurricanes. Well, this isn't really well. It may be. This may be a global warming issue. I uh, my parents reside on Anna Marie Island down in Florida, and uh, their health was bad, so I was down for a couple of weeks. But prior to this last visit, uh, the red tide has has made a huge impact down there. And my understanding of this, again, from uh, from my limited reading on this, has been that the uh, Okeechobee Lake uh, down in the central part of Florida, an enormous body of water, uh, because of sugarcane farming, uh, two outlets were created on the east and the west coast. It used to flood into the Everglades, and, and two outlets were created. And as a result, residual nitrous junk that we all fertilize with and everything has been pouring out there and helped fertilize this algae growth, which they say, remember, it's natural. Well, <laughs> it happens to be blooming with increased regularity. And it kills fish. The red tide kills fish for enormous swaths of area. So all along this beautiful, pristine beach in Anna Marie Island, Florida, where I used to fish for pompano and for all types of fish off the beach, surf cast, there weren't any birds. Not one bird. Imagine that. Not one bird in the air for months. There wasn't any fish. There was no sea life, no dolphin. Things we saw with regularity down there. And I sat there on that beach and thought I was so depressed. And I thought, this is like scorched earth right here. There's nothing here. Mm-hmm. Is that, well, is that a, an example of what, what we're talking about? What One third of the birds in, the, in North America have disappeared. Mm-hmm. That's bit that made the news just in the last week. One third. It's still not Bur- the same. Birds, and this red tide's been the, done for for a long time. Birds are the canary are, are the are the canary, canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Coal mine. I, I think that though what you're speaking to is another interesting point is that there's an interaction between climate and other things. So I think the major cause of these algae blooms are that you've already dumped enormous amounts of of phosphorus-based fertilizer. Right now the water's warmer. Right, it doesn't get cold, and, and, and it's it's a big petri dish. The ocean becomes a big petri dish for these things, and you get these interactive effects. Right, that if you didn't have the pollution, the water would just be warmer. But since you have the pollution and the water is warmer, now you get the the red the red bloom. Unintended right? consequences. Unintended. For and I mean, it just just collateral could, damage. One of the things about uh, um, if you've ever had a seltzer water. A seltzer, can of seltzer that's warm, and you open it up and it, psh, yes. it blows out. Why is that? It's because the 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 solubility of the ability of a water to hold carbon dioxide and other gases like oxygen depends on the temperature. So the can of seltzer gets warm, can't hold the CO2, you open it up, boom, you get all the stuff come out, right? Same is true for the oceans. You warm the oceans, the oxygen boils out, and now the fish die. So you have enormous dead zones and plankton that can't... And so once you kill the plankton, then the food chain in the ocean collapses. Forget the red tide. That's an, I mean, that's a parallel horrible thing. You warm the ocean, the food chain collapses, and if you don't think you're going to be affected by that, uh, you're wrong. But... I mean, I, it's important, though, to keep, I mean, 
Al Gore said, you know, it's like a walk through the, the, the biblical plagues, right? You start talking about this stuff, it's depressing, right? But there is, there are things to be done. It's like you stand up and say, no, this is not acceptable, right? right? I'm, this is, this is basically what, so the, the climate strike, uh, which you're probably familiar with, you know, this our past youth, Friday, right? This past, yeah. our youth are just saying, no, you must do something different. Tell me right? about the climate strike. What was the genesis of that. Who wants to get Carol it, it, you go? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It, it, you know, it's what wonderful is how all these actions play on each other. They have built on each other. I think Greta Thunberg uh, was uh, impressed with the Parkland high school kids uh, and their stand against gun control, against uh, gun Violence. violence. Yep. And so she decided she went to the uh, in front of the Swedish parliament where she lives and she just sat there every Friday. She skipped school and she it's only been a year since she started doing it. She it was it was in August a year ago. And she start, and you know the next day somebody came up and then she got more and more attention and then and then uh, people in Germany and other countries were starting to pay attention to her. And I re- I saw the whole blossoming of this thing over the last year. It's been phenomenal. It's been very exciting. And because of that, um, kids in the U.S. were getting, uh, because what she was doing in Sweden uh, and uh, had, you know, it, it's taken off here in the U.S. Uh, with uh, uh, zero hour, yeah, yeah, zero hour with uh, Margolin, and uh, it's you know, it it all kind of feeds on itself. And I'm thrilled that the kids are they they've been doing their own thing, but now I feel as though we have generational thrust behind pushing for for uh, to make this issue an the topmost issue of our lifetimes. All part about changing the conversation. And, and, and it's 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 a, a it's interesting to me that the emergence of the uh, youth strikes, right? Fascinating story behind it. The, that that cre- has created what you could call um, a victim, right? One of the things about climate change is very nebulous, right? We're all doing it and like the, the damages in yeah. the future and whatnot, right? But now you say, okay, you know, these kids are the ones that are going to suffer the consequence of it. And I think it's fascinating that Greta Thunberg started out by herself in Sweden, but she was just evidently the the spark. I think everything was set, right? And when she did it, like, all these other children joining it has to be because there's this pent-up reservoir of, of stress and that this was the nucleation point in which you get everyone else paying attention. And, you know, that, that's so important. I, I love that you said that, that as a victim. Because as a hopeful grandparent here in the near future, mm-hmm. um, I can tell you, uh, it it re- it changes my focus. It really does. And, and I mean, the fact that I'm going to be a grandparent and then to hear about carbon budgets and the impact of all of these, the imminence of all of this uncorrectable damage that we're doing, uh, it really makes you want to step up to the plate. Because well, I think I think the, in addition to the. The the victim or I, the way I heard it was an aggrieved minority, right? yeah, an aggrieved, right? Yeah. But at the same time, there are also now clear villains, in the sense that the fossil fuel companies, that is to say, the Exxon's of the world, knew in 1977 what they were selling, 
and they have actively uh, uh, tried to convince us and confuse us about the impact of what they are selling. Again, very analogous to the cigarette makers, right? Tried to tell us that cigarette smoking didn't cause cancer for decades, right? Similar things. And so now you have clear victims in the children. And what I've read is like unborn generations far outnumber all the humans that had ever been born. Right, 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 right. And so the idea that we in nineteen in, in twenty nineteen are going to make choices that affect literally billions of people that are not yet born is is a bad deal. And we know that much of the like a vast majority of the pollution, the stocks of pollution, have gone into the air since the fossil fuel companies knew the damage they were that that came from their product. And so, okay, you have both sides of the coin. The the thing the 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 kids have given a greater sense of urgency because their 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 whole lives are being impacted by the climate crisis. Their whole lives. Many of us have lived the, the vast majority of our lives already, and so. Our stake is theoretically not as high, unless as you, as a grandparent, uh, as a potential grandparent, I already have just recently become one. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh, 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 you know, it really, it really focuses the mind. It really focuses uh, what is the future going to be for my grandkid? What am I? What can I possibly do? And it, it, we need that sense of urgency because we don't we, we we don't want our world to hurt the people and places we love. Richard, what can people expect when they come out to 2050 climate crisis on October 17th at the Elks Lodge here in Franklin at 7 p.m. on a Thursday night? Can they expect a, a, a conversation like this? Can they get their questions answered about what the climate crisis is and how they can plug in? Well, the way the uh, I've been working with a team of about five other people, volunteers from uh, Franklin, and the way the uh, the event is going to be structured, um, there's going to be discussion and presentations by both the uh, both Carolyn and Ted here, along with uh, Marjorie Decker, who is a state legislative, uh, uh, and they're going to talk first about the causes and effects from a scientific point of view, and then the policy implications that. Uh, come out of that uh, in the local uh, Massachusetts uh, legislature. And then Carolyn's going to speak about what the individual can do, as she's been speaking about here, on a, uh, in a s- systematic change that can be done uh, at the local level. And as uh, Ted has pointed out, you know, there's all different uh, venue, all different um, avenues that could be followed. Uh, in order to uh, get active and to make some systematic uh, changes yeah. for for our present lives and for the future generations as yeah. well. So that is the 2050 Climate Crisis uh, Symposium, I'm going to call it. It's October 17th at the Elks Lodge, 1077 Pond Street here in Franklin from 7 to 9 p.m. And importantly, I also want to direct you to the bill that has been sponsored by Senator Eldridge and uh, Marjorie Decker uh, and State Rep Decker. And it is calling for 100 percent renewable energy here in the next 20 or so years here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. An important bill. Please call your legislator after you've read the bill and ask them to sponsor it. You don't need to be an expert to ask them to support the bill.
if I could just uh, emphasize two other things as well. It's a uh, really an interactive session. There will be um, ample time for questions of anybody at the, at the, on the panel um, at the conclusion of the presentations. Um, and then there's an opportunity to uh, get involved at, with either of these uh, organizations. Um, there's an opportunity for people to talk with each other, find out where they're coming from. Obviously, it's uh, being held in Franklin, uh, but we have already done some pre-registration, and there are people coming from neighboring towns as well. And of course, we want to encourage people to get to know their neighbors and yeah. see what they can do as a, as a uh, community. What a great place to bring your your middle school or high school kids uh, to come have them get on the cutting edge of what is a movement as demonstrated by this climate strike last week, which was uh, precipitated by a young lady 16 years of age in Germany. Uh, I say precipitated. It was motivated or in part inspired by her actions. And um, this is a, a movement inspired by our youth as they are the ones that will be the victims. Uh, and uh, certainly we have the moral imperative each and every one of us to be involved with this at the local level and at the national level. Importantly, I think, Ted, I loved how you phrased the fact that we can all get involved based on our own level of comfort. If you're an artist and you want to paint about climate change, paint. If you're a foodie and you want to talk about the relative uh, carbon footprint of how food is produced and so on and so forth, go for it. If, you, if you're a poet, if you're a singer, if you're a songwriter, if you're a lawyer, there are ways for you to become involved, but we all have a moral imperative to make this a, frankly, the number one priority in our lives, because without the climate, we ain't going anywhere. Um, so I want to thank each one of our guests and remind you who they are. We have Carolyn Barthel from 350 Massachusetts. We also have Ted McIntyre, uh, board member from Mass Climate Action Network, and my friend Richard Halpern from the Franklin Democratic Town Committee, and I particularly want to thank you, Richard, for all of the effort that you put into putting on these educational forums for the citizens of Franklin. It's not a partisan effort. It just happens to be sponsored by our committee, and thank you for that. Though it is sponsored by the Democratic Town Committee, it's a really a nonpartisan event. Right. We want to emphasize, as as uh, both Carolyn and Ted have mentioned here, this is something that affects everybody. It's, it affects society. Rich, poor, black, white, Democratic, Republican. This is something that's for the ages. And... Um, it's, it's an issue that needs to be addressed and, and at the local level, and I'm pleased that we're getting a great response already. Get your feet wet. Get educated. October 17th, 2050 Climate Crisis Symposium at the Elks Lodge here in Franklin. And so, for my guests, Carolyn Barthel, Ted McIntyre, and Richard Halpern, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters, and I'll see you next week.